The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. You're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI alumni Fernando Morales Wilhelm. He graduated from the land of anteaters way back in 1989, just over 30 years ago, and is currently the dean of the College of Science at George Mason University, which is located about 30 minutes drive outside of Washington, D.C., Last year, Professor Morales Wilhelm was inducted into the UCI Engineering Hall of Fame for having made a significant impact upon his profession and brought distinction to his alma mater. There's a ton to talk about here. I, I can't wait, but there's also one little tidbit that I need to mention. Way back in the late 1980s, Fernando and I were roommates across the street from UCI in the Princeton townhomes near the intersection of university and campus. And after Fernando graduated, we fell out of contact. And, and over time, I forgot his last name. But I would often think, I wonder whatever happened to that tall, good-looking kid originally from Venezuela. And about six months ago, my wife and I were purging some files. And lo and behold, we found a note with Fernando's last name on it. From there, it took about 15 minutes to track him down on Google. And we recently briefly talked, and we planned to do this interview. So... UCI Conversation listeners, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I think we are going to enjoy it. So without any further ado, welcome, Professor Morales Wilhelm. How are you today? Thanks so very much, Kevin, for the nice introduction. And certainly, it's great to remember those times when uh, we were roommates. And technically, you were my very, very first roommate and landlord at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess I did own the uh, condos. I wish I still had that condo. <laughs> well, very good. I, I hope those are good landlord memories. Yes, absolutely. Uh, why don't we just start from the top? You were born in Venezuela, right? So I technically, I grew up in Venezuela. I, I was actually born in New York City. Oh, wow. Okay. My parents, both from Venezuela, met and got married in New York. Oh. Uh, shortly after I was born, when I was two years old, they decided to go back home. And I was in Venezuela since I was a little kid and came back to the U.S. for graduate school at UC Irvine. Yeah. Were they 
tired of New York City or you know what was there opportunities in, for them in Venezuela or I think it was a combination of things so I was born in 66 my younger sister was born in 68 and we actually left for Venezuela towards the end of 68 so I think I think at that time uh, living in the city and they lived in Queens mm-hmm. living in the city with two you know young babies you know turned out to be a little too much and they just decided to go back home and was much of their family in Venezuela uh, yeah, exactly. So both my dad and my mom's siblings were all back in Venezuela. That's correct. Gotcha. And was it Caracas or other places? Yes. Uh, yeah. So we went back. And so Caracas is what I called home for you know, the next 20 years of my life. Uh, so I was I went there when I was two. And, 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 and that basically uh, ran me through college. Uh, so I did my college there. And um, I came to the U.S. just a few days shy of my 22nd birthday i arrived at at irvine okay and did you always know that you'd go to grad school in the united states or how did that all come about that's interesting so so my dad went to college in new york that's how he was huh. there and yet, so growing up i do remember sort of my dad was an engineer and, and so am i so i think he influenced me in some ways uh probably not directly but to to go to grad school in the U.S. And, and that's, you know, that's how I started seeking out schools when I was in my last year of college in Caracas. Gotcha. And that was Simon Bolivar University? Right, right. Okay. Okay. Simon Bolivar, yes. Gotcha. And how did you decide to go to UCI? So it's it, it was really just a, a matter, a practical matter. And, and, and you'll find uh, this story uh, probably a little interesting. So when I applied to grad school, I, I of course, in, in every application, I would put down that I would need some sort of financial aid. And I remember uh, being accepted by University of Texas in Austin, but they sort of offered like a half, half fellowship. And then I, then I got the acceptance at UC Irvine. And the, the first letter that I got had no financial aid. So I decided, well, it's not going to be Irvine, but Shortly, a few days after, I got a a second letter, and apparently, there was a scholarship that had been sitting in the School of Engineering for years. The eligibility for that scholarship had to be a U.S. citizen of Hispanic origin for graduate school. Mm-hmm. So the person that wrote to me, and then I we spoke on the phone. He said, "You know, we." We've had the scholarship here for years. We've never had anyone to give it to. So you're perfect for this. <laughs> so then I, got, then I got a full scholarship, and and that's what you know made my decision easy to go to Irvine. Oh right, being in the right place at the right time. <laughs> and did you know what you were majoring in at that point, or was that still evolving for you? So when I got to campus, I spoke to several of the professors and. The professor that was at the time actually the dean of the School of Engineering, uh, Bill Serignano, who's actually still around, his research interested me the most. And on top of that, because he was a dean, he had a lot of connections with funding agencies and with prospective employers. So to me, it was a no-brainer to go and work for him. Great. Was that your faculty advisor then? Well, he wasn't my faculty advisor. And um, in addition to that, I worked very closely with Dr. Roger Rangel, who at that time was a research associate, so he wasn't on the faculty yet. He's now been at the faculty at Irvine for over 30 years, is now a full professor, and he's the chair of mechanical engineering. So I ended up working with Roger a lot more closely, 
because the dean had other obligations, of course. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Were there one or two other big names in the engineering department that you can mention just? No, absolutely. I mean, that department at that time, and I'm sure it still is, it had a cast of superstars. It had Donald Edwards, who was a very well-recognized engineer and scientist. Saeed Al-Gobashi, who was a guru of computational methods. And Derek Don Rankin, who's still there now. He was very good with experimental fluid mechanics. So it really had a cast of superstars in the field that I wanted to work on. And, you know, Fernando, as, well, to be honest, I mean, I, I knew you were sharp back when we were roommates. Did it come easy? Did you feel like you excelled better than you thought you were? Or like, oh man, I had to grind my, you know, because you, from UCI, you went to MIT. So you must have been doing something right at UCI. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I wouldn't say it was easy, okay? I mean, uh, you know, grad school is always challenging. Um, and no matter no matter if you're at UCI, MIT, or any school, I think it's, it's a challenge. I think in addition to that, you know, it's, it was the first time I was away from home. You know, I didn't see my family for a while. But academically, I think what made it probably easier and more livable for me was my fellow students. You know, it was a fun group. It was not just a study-study. You know, we would go out for a run or for a bike ride. We'd go to Laguna Beach for relaxation. Uh, there was, you know, lots of opportunities to socialize. And that made it more palatable and made my time there, you know, not only easier, but also pleasant. And I see someplace a note where Professor Jack Brower was a student back in those days. And you- yeah, so Jack and I were—I mean, he was—he was like one of my classmates, right? So we would, um, you know, we were in classes together. We would play baseball, particularly in the summer, quite a bit. And and I've I've stayed in touch. Um, and I actually got to see him when I visited Irvine just about a year ago. I was there about a year ago for the uh, Hall of Fame uh, celebration. So uh, so Jack was there and I, and I oh. saw him. I hadn't seen him in a while. But actually, Jack and I also uh, left. So we both got our degrees at Irvine at the same time. And we both went to MIT and started at the same time and finished at the same time. So oh. wow. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so there's some common background there too. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor Well, I update my listeners. If you join us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my special guest today is UCI Distinguished Alumni from 1989, Professor Fernando Morales-Wilhelm, who is currently the Dean of the College of Science at George Washington University. We're tracing his life progression from growing up in Venezuela to coming to the USA to study, and then what's he been doing along the way since then, and it's a lot First of all, Professor, do you go by Morales Wilhelm or what do you go by? <laughs> I usually go by Fernando. I, I don't ask people to call me Professor or Professor this or Doctor that. Fernando's fine. Even in my current position as dean, I'm okay if, if people call me Fernando. That's the way I prefer it too. And you just started at George Mason University. Is it less than a year? Yes, July 1st, 2020. So literally okay. six months and a little bit. Wow. Well, why don't we just jump into that? How did that all come about and how's it going? It's going very well. It, I mean, it's been a little bit of a challenge. So I tell people that uh, I accepted the job the first week of March of 2020, literally three or four days after the country went into lockdown. So, oh, wow. Um, and uh, so I found myself that weekend asking, oh my God, what have I done? You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, right. I'm, I'm going to start a job now. If you and it's if you remember what we were thinking about in March, April last year, we thought. I mean, a lot a lot of people thought that 
we'd be done with the virus by the summer. You know, people said, oh, we'll, we'll go back. And of course that didn't happen. So I've been doing this job for almost six, seven months now. And it's been, you know, like I'm sure at, at Irvine is, it's been a, a good chunk of the activity has been virtual, you know, very little office work, classes delivered online, research done with some limitations and a lot of safety measures. And so trying to get the reins of a college uh, with... 7,500 students, 350 faculty, a budget about, of about $100 million a year. It's been quite challenging. It's been <laughs> quite, quite interesting. I bet. How does George Mason compare to UCI, like in terms of size? So in terms of size, it's, they're probably, so Mason's, it's just under 40,000 students. I think Irvine is probably a little smaller. but I think just much. slightly yeah, so it's about the same size. Mason is also a very young university, as is Irvine. They're young, evolving universities trying to grow their enrollment and their research activities. So there's lots of similarities, I would say. You know, Irvine, um, you know, I, I always cherish and enjoy and, and, and have very fond memories of my days there. It's, 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 um, it's one of my favorite places in the world to visit, to be there. Um, uh, Mason is located in the, in the greater Washington, D.C. area, also a very interesting part of the country. So there are some parallels and, and, um, and uh, some similarities, I would say. And as the dean of the College of Science, is that physical sciences? Right. So I got, you know, physics, chemistry, math. We have a, a computational sciences uh, here. We have uh, neurosciences. So probably very similar to the School of Physical Sciences at UCI. Okay. And is this your first time that you've been dean of such a broad, the whole kit and caboodle? Absolutely. So it's my first position as dean and and certainly uh, the first time I'm doing this job. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we've already talked about COVID's been a complete, everything turned on its head, but I don't know. Does it ever feel a little daunting? (laughs) Well, I think it does, but part of the reason that anyone, and certainly that was my case, you you take the job as dean is because you're looking for a challenge, right? So. So the challenge turned out to be different, probably more unusual than I would, yeah. I would have expected. But it's still, I mean, I was still up for a challenge when I decided to, mm-hmm. to chase uh, this position. Yep. Well, well, you know, why don't we go back to, so once you, you left UCI and you went to MIT, that's pretty cool. You know, can you just describe that? Were you just extremely excited to be going to such a well-respected school? And did it surprise you that you were there? How did that all evolve? It was an exciting opportunity. I think, you know, when you're very young, and at that time I was 23 years old when I left Irvine for Boston. And, you know, I I don't think you fully comprehend or realize what you're getting yourself into (laughs) when you're that young. But because of the same reason, you sort of don't make a big deal out of it, right? So you just do it. And I left Irvine a week later. I had an apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, a few blocks away from MIT and and classes started, and, you know, then it was back to the usual. The one thing that was quite different was the weather, the climate. You know, it's a, <laughs> you know that's a very cold part of the country, very different than, than, than Irvine <laughs> and, and the surroundings. Now, was your emphasis of study at UCI, was it uh, so, hydrologists? 
So my, my career shifted a little bit when I moved from Irvine to MIT. At Irvine, I was doing probably a little bit more, you know, straight out mechanical engineering uh, graduate work, right? Uh-huh. But while at Irvine, I... So would you say like you were kind of a generalist? Well, yes. It, it was really focused on, you know, fluid mechanics and heat transfer, you know, very, very core uh, mechanical engineering disciplines, right? Uh-huh. But I got really interested in, in environmental problems. So when I went to MIT, I, and I started, you know, shopping around for research opportunities and talking to professors, I, I got really interested in environmental problems, specifically focusing on water. And that's how I sort of incursioned into the, what's known as the field of hydrology, right? So that's why I call myself a hydrologist now, but it was really sort of a, a change in, in scope. And how long were you at MIT? So I was there for four years. I graduated in 93. And those years went by really, really quickly, you know, like, like, you know, like these things typically do. Uh, uh-huh. And right in the middle of those four years, I got married. So uh-huh. uh, and I've, been, uh, I've been married since 1990. Okay. Um, what month in 1990 did you marry? I got married in June. I think you mentioned that when we talked six months ago, because yeah. so did I. <laughs> I think <Yeah>. we're brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, what's the date? Yeah, so I got married on June sixteenth. Okay, a week after us. Yeah. Okay, so you got married and you're. You yeah, finished I finished my degree, um, and then you know, as I was finishing my PhD there, my wife started graduate school. She's in education, so she enrolled in a master's program in Boston. So we ended up staying. You know, so she got her degree, and I I got a job, and then altogether, you know, we ended up spending uh, a little bit over ten years in Boston. Yeah. Wow. So now you're a baseball fan. You had to go to Fenway, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I did. And, uh, um, and I became, I think I became a, um, a, 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 a baseball fan because of the Red Sox and, and, and my allegiance to the Red Sox continues to this day. <laughs> that's okay that's okay yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no one's perfect right <laughs> i tell you my dad and my brother and i we made a trip uh, maybe it's 10 years ago now but to boston and going to fenway park i mean that was, you know, was like, oh my god fenway park this is just something so uh just one of the great baseball stadiums Absolutely. because it's so old. It's a, I, mean, I think it's the oldest. Though. Yeah, it's a great sports town, you know, overall. Right, right. Uh, and did you go right into academia? No. Oh, so by the time I finished my PhD, I decided that I wanted to experience practicing my profession, you know, in some fashion. I did, I think in, in, at the very bottom, I sort of knew that I wanted to do academia, but I said, let me take a break. I can do yeah. academia a little bit later. You know, an engineering firm with their, their headquarters uh, very close to MIT uh, physically, you know, offered me a job just as I was finishing my thesis. Huh. So so it worked out very nicely. Like, you know, I finished my thesis on a Friday. I started work on Monday, you know, <laughs> that sort of deal. Yeah. There you go. No wasted time there. You know, to the general population, can you tell us what your thesis was or will we understand? <laughs> I'll give it a shot. So. I worked on research that tried to understand how pollution uh, gets into the ground and, and it pollutes uh, groundwater, the water that's underneath the ground. And, you know, overall, um, this figure might not be completely exact today, but it's roughly about 50 to 55% of the water that's used in the U.S. comes from the ground. 
it varies. You know, there's um, the Western states, like where you are in California, you actually use a lot more groundwater. Really? Uh, wow. And um, yeah, and, um, and uh, so um, keeping it clean and trying to understand where the risk of it being polluted is it's, it's important. So that's sort of uh, what I worked on at the time. And um, if, um, you know, for people in the audience, they may remember environmental issues in, in towards the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s. This was a big deal then. We, uh, you, you, may re- you may remember the term Superfund or Superfund sites. Yes. So, so these were heavily polluted uh, sites and the majority of pollution was underground. It came primarily through things like oil spills and uh, you know, broken pipes underground that spewed sewage and con- contaminated water. And these became a, um, you know, a big deal because we, we knew so little about what happens underground. So that's what I worked on for, for my PhD. And, and actually, it, it kept me occupied for about a decade after I graduated professionally. Yeah. Excellent. It's you know, very valuable work. You know, you don't hear about super funds. Are we doing a lot better job today than, you know, then have we recognized and corrected or? or yes. No? So a couple of things have happened. I think first we've, we've learned a lot more, which has allowed us to clean up these sites in a much more cost effective way. So we not having to spend billions of dollars to clean up a, a groundwater site. And then, of course, there's been a lot of investment. You know, it's been 30 years of, of investing. We're still doing it. Uh, we're, you know, many states and many federal agencies are still in charge of, of cleaning up sites. But we're doing it in a smarter and, and more cost-effective way. Oh, that's excellent. There's a good story. Yeah, I agree. Did you still stay in private industry after you left that first consulting firm you went to? Or? Yes. So what ended up happening is that probably four years after working full-time, sort of got the academic bug again. And I started uh, teaching um, in the evenings, um, uh-huh. part-time at Northeastern University, which is also in Boston. So they had an opening for a part-time professor. I, you know, I sent them my resume. They interviewed me. They said, sure. And they started teaching a class here and a class there. And then a couple of years later, they opened a full-time position. The department chair said, you should apply because you're, 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 your teaching is good. I'm sure your research is going to be good. And you're, you know, you're a graduate of MIT. So you've got, you know, you, you certainly have the credentials. So I applied and I eventually got the job. And, and that's how my, my career in academia started. Very cool. Hey, just a moment, Professor. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my very special guest is UCI 1989 alumni, Professor Fernando Morales Wilhelm. He's a hydrologist and water resources engineer and has been the principal investigator in over $300 million of research. And we're just starting to hear about his transition from college, then he went into industry, and now he's getting back into academia. So, pr- Professor, please keep going. So, we're living in Boston. You know, my wife uh, finishes her graduate degree. I'm, I'm, I'm teaching at Northeastern. One thing we, re- I, and we had in, in you know, along the way, we um, we had two daughters. So they were born uh, in 1996 and 1998. Okay. Andrea um, is um, is 24 years old now, and, and Adriana is 22 years old now. They were both born in Boston. We found ourselves in in Boston, which is a fantastic city. If uh, if you're a student, if you're young, if you uh, if you have two babies, and you are on a assistance professor's salary. 
it becomes a little bit of a challenge. Uh, it becomes a little bit of a challenge to have a, a comfortable living. Is it really expensive? Is that what it's you're saying? Really, yeah. So Boston, it's, it's, it's been historically very expensive. It was very expensive then. It continues to be very expensive now. Uh, okay. Yeah. And we had some family ties in Miami, Florida. My mother had relocated there. So we decided it was time to think seriously about, okay, so we have two kids. Where do we want to put some roots, you know? Um, yeah. And, and so, and, and, and certainly Miami, um, this is now talking about the year 2000. At that time, it's become a little bit more expensive now, but at that time it was much more affordable. So huh. I ended up, you know, poking around for job opportunities and I eventually found a job at, at the University of Miami. And so moved to Miami in 2000. What were you teaching then? Water resource management? Yes. I taught classes like hydrology, like hydraulic engineering, like fluid mechanics, you know, in, in the uh, School of Engineering okay. at Miami. Do you get into any of the fracking? You know, they take the oil out, they replace it with water. Is, is Am I butchering that or is that? No, it's about right. So fracking is essentially trying to force hydrocarbons out of the ground, pretty well stuck. But if you apply enough pressure through fracturing, that's where the frack comes in, right? You break the ground by applying pressure. Pressure is applied primarily through either water at high pressure or or air at high pressure. You fracture the ground. When you fracture the ground, the hydrocarbons become liberated. They become free and then you capture them and those have value, right? Those, um, that becomes fuel. That's, that's amazing. How long has that been done successfully? Is it so probably up until ten, maybe twelve years ago, it was still it was still pretty experimental, not commercially available. It became, you know, in the, in the past ten years, it, it it became technically feasible, economically feasible, and it's one of the reasons why gas prices in the U.S. have been relatively low for the past decade. You know, right? It's been a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. Were you involved in all of that or did you kind of... By the time that happened, I was already more into water issues. I had pretty much, you know, sort of left the underground, <laughs> underground, yeah. you know, profession, so to speak. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so how long were you at the University of Miami? So I was at the University of Miami for five years, but I, I, but I was in Miami for a total of 10 because, in you know, after five years at the University of Miami... There was another university in town that's Florida International University, FIU, oh, okay. which is like public, which is a, University of Miami is private. FIU is public. It's a state university. They made me an offer to come on board. So I, I left the University of Miami in 2005 and went to FIU. And I was at FIU until 2010. Oh, so okay. Five years. Mm-hmm. And I see that you've worked and consulted with NASA. Was that all happening during that time or, or other yes. times? Yes, actually, shortly after I went to FIU, I got a a big research award, first from the National Science Foundation and then from NASA within a span of about a couple of years. So when I was in Florida, I got really interested, Miami in particular. It's, um, you know, Miami was built on what's called a wetland, right? Wetland is essentially an expanse of land that wants to be wet. I mean, that's the best way to describe. It. That's why I call them wetlands. And, and, and if, you, if you've been to Miami, Miami is very flat. It's very low elevation, which makes it very prone to flooding, right? It's basically a city that was built on, on land that wants to be wet, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 
So I got really interested in that problem as, as a scientific research problem, understanding how water flows in wetlands, um, what happens when you when human activity, particularly urbanization, you know, building a city and you build on it, <laughs> build on it. You know what what happens? So what happens to the water? I mean, the water wants to be there, uh, and uh, there are ways you can sort of prevent it from getting there. But and, you know, when push comes to shove, the water's going to get in, right? So I got really interested in issues of flooding, in issues uh, in more like the biological issues uh, that. Uh, because what you do when you urbanize an area like a wetland is that you, you basically pull out vegetation, you know, that's, that's there to build houses, to build parking lots, to build malls, to build, you know, the whole thing, right? And there are biological implications of that too, right? I became fascinated with sort of the wetland problem. And if you look around the United States, you know, you have the wetlands in Florida, and these are, you know, the big wetlands there are, is, is, is what's known today as Everglades National Park, right? You have also a big group of wetlands in the Louisiana coast, you know, um, where the sort of the Mississippi River discharges. And then there's sparse wetlands in the Northeast. There are some, you know, sparse wetlands in, in, in other coastal states of the country, like, you know, like California, Oregon, and, and Washington State. But uh, wetlands overall, and this is, um, you know, in, in, in the years 2000s, I... It, Scientifically, there was not a whole lot of work on research known on how and the hydrology of wetlands. And, and so I, I became very interested in that. And I ended up writing research proposals to NSF and NASA and got funded to, uh, to do a lot of investigations. And I spent, you know, a good 10 years of my career doing just that. And that's the time I spent in Miami, both at the University of Miami and at FIU. So did you reach some big conclusions or was it a lot of little things it seems like if you have a choice you wouldn't want to build on wetlands right more you wouldn't you want to be a little bit more tierra firma? absolutely no absolutely you know so for example now we know so so here are some of the conclusions so um, not just of my work but the work of lots of people that have invested their time but certainly so we know for example that wetlands the vegetation in wetlands actually prevent flooding. So when you take the vegetation out to build on top, it's not only that you are putting property in vulnerable locations to flooding, but you're also taking out the natural defenses that wetlands have built to prevent flooding from happening. So what's happening in Florida now, in the majority, I've seen data suggesting that in Miami, you get flooding about 200 days a year. And about half of those days, there's it's not even raining. So you get flooded just because of sea level, right? Um, really? tide. Tides and water comes in. And you go to Miami Beach and, you know, you see flooding, what's called sunny day flooding, flooding which is, you know, hmm. you're flooding and there's no, no rain in the horizon. Wow. And that's basically a, a, a result of having, um, you know, urbanized and built on, on a wetland. So things of that nature were a product of, investigations that myself and others did over that period of time. Why was NASA so interested in that? I know a lot of Cape Kennedy's built on, it seems like wetlands, but was that it or were there other reasons? So, so NASA was interested because of the following. So NASA has been for a lot of time, they have been trying to monitor using satellites from space, monitor, you know, how the planet is changing, you know, and yeah. the planet is changing means, for example, when you replace forests, 
for agricultural purposes or to build cities on them, right? Um, and where I live now in the Washington, D.C. area is a good example of that. This is a very a highly forested area, but it's also heavily urbanized now. So there's some of those impacts. So NASA got interested in, in the work in the Everglades because they had not done any work on wetlands before. And the way that research opportunity that I, I eventually became the principal investigator for, that the way that happened, literally, I cold called a uh, scientist at NASA at Goddard's uh, Space Flight Center, which is um, in Maryland. And I told him, listen, you know, I'm Professor So-and-so. I'm here at Florida International University. I worked on the Everglades. I'm interested in, in using NASA instruments and NASA uh, technology to better understand what goes on on wetlands. And the guy got hooked in like five minutes. Look at you. Uh, yeah, we ended up writing a proposal together, getting funded, and did about six or seven years of work uh, together uh, with a team. These things tend to be, in, in addition to gaining a lot of understanding, doing a lot of research and, and, uh, and learning, we also had a lot of fun. That's also something I really appreciated. Very good. Professor, I do notice that in your bio, it mentions principal investigator over $300 million of research. Can you tell us what that means? Right. So... Uh, principal investigator is the lead in investigator, the, the, the lead researcher on a large research project. So in addition to this project on the Everglades with NASA, uh, later, you know, probably the past 10 years or so, I moved to the greater Washington, D.C. area. I moved to Maryland. I joined the faculty at the University of Maryland after coming from Florida. And I continue working with NASA and also with NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, on issues of water, climate, weather. So my interest uh, expanded a little bit, and uh, I now was able to collaborate and build teams with um, with lots of researchers. And you know, at some point, I was just to give you a, an idea of size, I was supervising about 200 researchers, and that's what being a principal investigator means. So one of the things it means is you have management experience. You, you yes. typically will have a team. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, as you start growing teams, as the projects start getting larger, you know, really have to acquire and practice, uh, you know, um, quite a bit of management to, uh, to keep everything running on time and getting things done. Right. And that's no easy uh, <laughs> deal. Um, excuse me, just for one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI Engineering Hall of Famer, Professor Fernando Morales Wilhelm. He graduated from UCI in 1989, went on to MIT, and has worked in and on all the major continents of the globe and taught at numerous universities. Professor, you, you mentioned that you've had $300 million of research, $300 million, a lot of money. Is that, yeah, that's pretty top in terms of research. Like, yeah, that's in the upper echelon of, of a professor. Yeah, yeah. in terms of, yeah, in terms of um, being principal investigator over uh, an amount of funding, it is on the high end for sure. And how long have you been in the Washington, D.C. area? Did you move from Florida up there? Yeah. So I, I arrived at Florida in 2000 and I came to the D.C. area in 2010. So I've been oh. here just a little bit under 11 years now. Okay. You know, that's a new area. Are you enjoying that area? Yes. I mean, it's uh, the D.C. area is very, very interesting. I think probably what struck me the most when I got here was that there's people from all parts of the world in the D.C. area. It's not just the fact that the U.S. government agencies and, and Congress and, you know, White House and everything's here, but you also have a lot of 
international organizations, things like the World Bank is in D.C., the International Monetary Fund is in D.C., lots of um, non-governmental organizations, think tanks. It's a very, very international city, quite unique in that respect. So the sort of the diversity that I've seen here, I, you know, I, I didn't see at Boston or in Miami or at Irvine. And that's been something that we've enjoyed tremendously. Excellent. How about in terms of adversity? You know, I think a lot of times students feel like, you know, professor never has to struggle at all. Was there any point that was like, oh yeah, you know, this, this thing, this point of my life was really difficult. I don't know. Did you feel like that or, or has it been a bed of roses the whole time? <laughs> no, I mean, of course not. I mean, I, I think, you know, when you read someone's bio, like you've seen mine, you know, you say you've been principal investigator on this many million dollars and you've been here, you've been there, you've taught here, you've got done work with NASA and this, it all sounds like, oh, that's a straight, you know, a straight yeah. uh, rate of successes, right? But, you know, I, I typically tell people that, especially in, in, when you do scientific research, you know, if you're successful, you might, so for example, you may get funded, you know, one proposal out of 10, you know, it's a, so it takes nine, nine declines to get one accepted, you know. Um, I think also, you know, when I tell this to my students and I tell this in every public forum that, that I have the opportunity to do so is, you know, I'm a scientist, so I make a living out of being wrong because, you know, the, the scientific method is essentially trial and error, right? You make a hypothesis, you try it out, you know, and, you know, more times than not, it's not going to work out. And that, at times, that sort of gets to you. So you you absolutely do have times, and I've actually, I've absolutely have had times during those 30 years that we're navigating through now where, you know, you sort of feel down and, you know, it's it sort of gets to you. But mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, you know, the um, when you get that success and when you get that thing that goes right, it really makes you forget about all the things that went wrong, <laughs> right? And, and so that's the positive side to this, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's what I've enjoyed all the time. And that's why I keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. How about in, in terms of your career, boy, you've been to a lot of places. Do you have a moment where it's like, I can't believe I met that person, or I so admire that person, or you, any famous scientist? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one that's actually close to home in Irvine. So, oh, yeah. uh, so Mario Molina, who yes. um, was a longtime professor at Irvine, he was actually a postdoc at Irvine, postdoc of, of Sherwood Rowland. So Mario and Sherwood uh, were the ones that in the late 1980s, they figured out that there was a a deficit referred to as the ozone hole in the atmosphere. Right. And the ozone hole was letting in ultraviolet rays that were very, very damaging, right? So, uh, and that investigation led to a whole host of changes in the way we pollute the atmosphere, or actually we started to pollute it less to a point where today the ozone hole is practically gone or, you know, it's sometimes it comes back for a little bit and then it goes away. So when I was an assistant professor at the University of Miami, Mario Molina visited. He was, uh, you know, he wasn't like an invited lecturer. So he gave a talk and I, I got the opportunity to meet him, shake his hand. That was great. So that was one case in which I, I said, wow, I mean, this guy is like, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, you know, this guy's like Yoda, right? It's, you know, he is, he's the guy, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I tried to interview him within the last year and was in the process of reaching out and he passed away. And it was, yeah. I just knew with his reputation, the way people speak about him, that um, I, I wanted to give it a try. So, uh, yeah. Well, absolutely. He's a wonderful, he was, he was a wonderful scientist, great human being, you know, great overall guy. Yeah. So that was uh, one case. Yeah. Wonderful. How about in terms of as a scientist, can you say who you feel like the top three scientists of all time are? Do you have a sense of that for yourself? I think, I mean, certainly, you know, um, there's numerous people that I would point and say, well, these are, these are like superstars, right? Um, I think Mario Molina will be up there and, and, and so would Sherwood Roland, of course. I'm certainly nowhere near that league, you know, not even close. <laughs> it doesn't make me feel bad or anything. It's really different individuals achieve different things. And there's just so much talent out there. And I would actually say that I'm very hopeful and very optimistic about the younger generations of scientists that are coming through. And I see people that you sort of see them in, in their in the early stages of their career and you just know these guys are going to be amazing, right? And this and that is so comforting. And so it makes me... Um, makes me proud and it makes me also very, very hopeful. I tend to be an optimist, you know, in these things, right? And, and I, I do think that the newer generations are probably more tuned into, into solving important problems and, and doing great things. To me, that's the promise. Oh, man, that's really wonderful to hear. You know, and as we're getting toward the end of the interview now, can you talk about things that you've been doing regarding COVID? Yes. So actually here at Mason, we have a very active uh, research groups that are doing uh, lots of work around COVID. We were able to develop, well, I say we, as I'm not directly involved, but it's the college and the researchers in, in the college that I lead are involved in developing a quick test for COVID. You know, one of the things that we realized with COVID early on is that it's, you know, just trying to understand the size of the problem required that we do testing, right? Um, it was, we just didn't know how many cases there were. We didn't know where the cases were. And this is, you know, March, April, May of last year were, were months of panic because we just did not know what was going on. We knew there was a disease. We had a vague idea of how it spread, but we did not know where it was. And we did not know how big it was. And that required doing testing. So a lot of our resources and a lot of our scientists were focused on developing Tests that would not take long, you know, like like right now you go to a to a pharmacy, you get a test and you get results in two or three days. Now we're developing tests where you get results in 10 to 15 minutes and tests that are cheap to do or to administer. And this is going to allow us to continue to figure out, you know, where the infections are, where the new cases are. And even though we have the vaccine, you know, developed and it's, it's rolling and people are, are getting vaccinated and, and, and that means that sooner rather than later, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. A lot of people get vaccinated. We, get, we will get this thing under control. We will continue to need to do a lot of testing. So that's one big area in which we're working. I think the other area in which we're working is trying to understand what are factors that facilitate or prevent COVID from spreading, right? And this means looking at, you know, for instance, uh, you know, one question that we got very curious early on. So when this originated in Wuhan, China, you know, it started, if, if you look at how it spread, it started spreading west and it never went south, not even south in China, but not Vietnam, not countries in the, to the south of China got the virus 
at, in ways that Italy and Spain and then the rest of Europe and then the U.S., you know, became infected. So we're trying to understand what factors and, and you know, things like uh, the, the, the weather, the temperature, the humidity, you know, what affects uh, the transmission of COVID. So we're very active in these areas, and there's uh, lots of interesting and exciting work going on here at Mason and in many other places. Excellent. And finally, Professor, you were elected into the uh, UCI Engineering Hall of Fame. How did you find out? So the way I found out was the following. So I, I first found out that I was nominated. So, the, you know, I, I got a call from a person at the School of Engineering at UCI and said, you know, you've been nominated to receive the award and, you know, the committee is going to meet and make decisions, et cetera. But we wanted you to know that you were nominated. That's a, and of course, that's a great privilege, et cetera. And uh, so that, you know, that got me excited. And then, you know, probably a month or so later, I got a second call saying, listen, you know, you've been awarded this and you're invited to come. This was in early January of 2020. So, you know, a little bit over a year ago. And the award ceremony was on February 28th. It was on a Friday uh, last year. I had the opportunity to go there with both my daughters. My wife actually had a business trip, so she couldn't come. So I went there with both my daughters and made a weekend out of it. And so we were on campus, you know, did the ceremony and the dinner. And, and I saw lots of friends. I saw... I saw Jack Brower, I saw Roger Rangel, I saw Bill Serignano, it was fun. I met with then-Dean Gregory Washington, who is now present here at Mason, so that was just a happy coincidence. And then we took the weekend and, you know, we, we did Laguna Beach for a little bit, we went to Venice Beach uh, over in L.A., we did a little bit of the Southern California, <laughs> you know, mandatory stops, right? <laughs> right. And you do visit UCI fairly often, do you not? I do. Over the past five years, I go at least once a year. I have colleagues there. I, I have friends there. Um, so it's it's fun to um, it's fun to come and visit. You know, if you and I had not lost track of each other, I probably would have uh, seen you as well. I, I hope actually I get to uh, get to see you next time I visit. Definitely. And have you done work in China? I have. Yes. Very very interesting country. Very. Um, um, it's it's a very very complex experience. It's difficult to describe. There's it's very very unique in, in some ways and, and daunting in other ways, you know, um, it's, uh, it's, it's a very different country, different culture, organized differently, operated differently. Um, so things as, as simple as, you know, the moment you step on in China, you know, your Facebook accounts, your Google accounts stop working. It's, there's no access to such sites over there. They have their own Google and they have their own social network. But at the same time, it's a very, very literate country. People are People are educated. Um, they know quite a bit more than than you would think they know about things that are, that are happening in other parts of the world. So it's um, it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah. And how about Africa? Africa, I've done quite a bit of work in Northern Africa and bordering with the Middle East as well in, as in South Africa. So it's um, also quite an interesting, you know, uh, all these places are are. Are fascinating, and, and, I, and I love traveling. For I mean, I think one of the privileges, and you know, for that I've experienced in my career is, is that my work has allowed me to visit these places and and get to know them a little bit better, and, and actually work in them. Yeah. Well, Fernando, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I really look forward to seeing you and and uh, and keeping in touch. No, absolutely, Kevin, and no, thanks for having me. Certainly, I mean, I look forward to the time when. This pandemic is over and we can just kick back and, and, you know, have a drink, a cup of coffee, whatever it is, and, 
you know, in Irvine or, you know, somewhere in Southern California. It's one, it continues to be one of my favorite places in the world. I've, I've told my wife that, you know, if, if I get to choose the next place I move to, that part of the world would be it. Oh, so great to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I have very fond memories and, you know, that's, that's, that's where my career really started. So it's been, it's a very special place for me. Oh, excellent. Thank you again, Professor. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having me over. You're welcome. Thank you again to Dean Fernando Morales Wilhelm of the School of Science at George Mason University, just outside of Washington, D.C. Professor Morales Wilhelm is also an Anteater alumnus from way back in 1989 when he earned his graduate engineering degree some 30 plus years ago. It just so happens that way back then, Fernando and I were roommates in a little condo just across the street at Campus Drive and University. He has come a long way, baby, since arriving from Venezuela as a kid to study engineering at UCI. Over the years, part of that journey has included being lead investigator in over $300 million of research grants, an amazing accomplishment. I wish Fernando continued success, especially working with another Anteater alumni, George Mason University President Gregory Washington. Go Anteaters! As always, thank you to piano man Fred Kaplan for the great blues piano tunes that open and close the show from his very tasty blues CD, Signifying. It's a good one. And now turning the page, coming up next at 5 p.m. is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, the show that discusses inventive solutions to common business problems with experienced business leaders. Stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, the public affairs show that every week explores the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Now, don't forget, you can always reach me by email at kboss at kuci.org. And my podcast website is for 24-7 access to all my interviews at www.bossenmeyer.com. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, encouraging you to stay safe, keep socially distancing, and wear a mask or two. Double protection can't hurt. I wish you a pleasant good evening. Happy trails. See you next week. So long, everybody.